You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Happy Croc Month, Will. Happy Croc Month, David. Happy Croc Month, everybody. And happy Croc Day. Yeah. World Croc Day, June 17th. Here on the Common Descent Podcast, June is Croc Month in honor of World Croc Day, in honor of Crocs, and in honor of Will's obsession with the second best animals that are out there. First best. All month long, we're doing special cool Croc-related stuff, including this, our bonus episode, all about Croc stuff. Now, we've done bonus episodes before that were interviews with various people. Well, one of the things that a lot of our listeners have asked for for many years is to hear more about us and our experiences and our backgrounds. So this bonus episode is an interview with Will. Yay! Thanks, Will, for coming on the Common Descent Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a real bump for you (laughs) to be here. Yeah, I I know I've hit it big. (laughs) As a bonus bit of fun, the questions that we have for this interview are a list inspired by suggestions by our patrons. Mm -hmm. So thank you to all of our patrons who submitted questions. We're going to use this list of questions for an interview with Will about Crocs, and then you will hear these questions again (laughs) next month when we do the same thing about snakes. Hey, speaking of Patreon, one of the big special things that we're doing this year for Croc and Snake Month, as we did last year, is we have a special tier on the Patreon, the Crocs and Snakes tier. Subscriptions that we receive at this level during this month will contribute to charitable donations we will be making at the end of the summer. We've mentioned this on the main episodes, but here we'll tell you specifically where we're donating. The Croc donation will be going to the Rafael Crespo Conservation Fund. This is a grant available through the University of Florida, which is meant to support aspiring biologists and ecologists by providing opportunities to advance their careers in crocodilian conservation. Mm -hmm. The person that this is named after, Rafael Crespo, is a person who was very enthusiastic about crocs and did a lot of work with them. Recent recipients of this fund include a number of researchers working on croc conservation in places like Cuba and Jamaica and even Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So at the end of the summer, this is a place we have our target set for our donation. So if you subscribe at the Crocs and Snakes tier during this month, your contributions to us will become contributions to this donation as well. And we've got another one for snakes that we'll talk about next month in July. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. And I'm, I'm excited to get to help support them. Yeah. And with those important notes done, we can now move on to our feature presentation. Will. Hello. Thanks for being here. This is Will Harris, paleontologist, (laughs) science communicator, and all-around person. I've got a whole bunch of questions here for you about Crocs. I'm ready. Once again, pulled together using suggestions from our patrons. These are the things that the people want to know. Let's begin with some personal questions. (laughs) Starting off, Will, with... And I'm going to give you a time limit on this one. (laughs) Why Crocs? What makes Crocs your favorite? What about Crocs resonates with you? I I have always thought Crocs were just such impressive animals. Like, they're big. They are... They look as impressive as they are in their ecosystem. Like, they're toothy. They're armored. They're large. They're powerful looking, and they are indeed powerful. So, like... They they have the same appeal as dragons and you know and dinosaurs for many people, and that you look as cool as it seems like you are. And so they just have always appealed in that regard. I've also liked them because they are unique in like they are a giant reptilian predator, like mm-hmm. outweighing lions and bears, and like they are our only remaining reptile predator of that size. And so like that's very cool. It's very cool that they hunt people, which is morbid. <laughs> uh, right, not usually a plus. No, and like I, I don't mean to belittle it, but like it, I have always been fascinated by the fact that they keep us on the in the food chain. Right, they are one of a very short list of animals that is actually potentially dangerous to people, not just in a defensive or accidental yes. way. Like there are a handful of species that are known to actively stalk humans if we enter their territory. Yeah. 
that's that is unique. There's not a long list of animals that still do that, and so that's that has always intrigued me about them. Yeah, it just it it there's something I respect about an animal that doesn't respect us. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit here on the podcast when I was a kid, uh, crocs were not like my favorite of animals. But when the question would come up of if you could be an animal, what animal would you be? For a long time, crocodile was my answer. Yeah. Because then nothing messes with you and you're big and you get to hunt stuff. You get to do basically whatever you want. And as long as you're not getting too close to hippos, you kind of have the run of your environment. Yep. So, yeah, they, they, they are impressively powerful animals. They look cool. They, they occupy a niche that they're the only reptiles still dominating the you know the top predator position like that you know where they're taking down big beefy prey and competing with other big predators so yeah i just powerful and impressive and imposing yeah they are pretty cool Mm -hmm. pretty cool next question uh where did your love of crocs come from did you have early experiences that helped form this appreciation uh the earliest experience i had which yeah, I can't say this is where it came from, but my first birthday, my mom got a, a birthday card that was a little cartoon red alligator and made the cake a copy of that card. You know, cut the pieces into the shape and then got red icing and put an eye on and everything. So the card and the cake were both red cartoon alligator. And of course, I don't remember that from the moment, but she took a picture of it and showed it to me later on, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a bit older enough to remember it. And so that's always just stuck with me that that was, I then eventually very quickly discovered dinosaurs and fell in love with them and very early on started loving reptiles in general and crocs specifically. And so I can't say for sure that that formed <laughs> in my little brain, but that was my first interaction with crocs uh, was my first birthday cake. And then just, yeah, since then, we my family would make efforts to go to the zoo regularly. You know, we would take pretty, pretty often, you know, if not yearly trips. And that was a very common trip for my school because we lived near the Atlanta Zoo. So I always liked the reptile house and getting to see crocs in there. So that, like, I didn't have many personal encounters until getting to go down to Louisiana to visit extended family where they had... You know, they were hunters, so they would have some uh, alligator heads that they had displayed. And I got to see those up close. They had stories of alligators. They had one about hunting dogs that went would go missing while chasing deer. And then finally they oh, caught yeah. an alligator <laughs> with hunting dog collars <laughs> in its belly. And that stuck in my head of like, that's that's one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. And no one made that up. Right. <laughs> yeah, this isn't like a mythological, this isn't yeah. like a, le- a local legend. Exactly. That's, you know, there was just a gator that, there. <laughs> that was just a gator that knew where the game trail was and would wait for the dogs to chase the deer. And as the story embellished, let the deer pass and catch the dog. Right. <laughs> and so like, I, it just had enough that stacked up. And I, yeah, I think it was just the fact that like I was a dinosaur kid. As so many kids, you know, have that that phase, but it never stopped being a phase for me. And then just having that, like, well, dinosaurs are super cool, but I can see that animal at the zoo. And that fills in a lot of the categories that are right. attracting me to dinosaurs. So, it, yeah, it, it just discovered that they were, uh, uh, they drew to me very early on. Yeah. Now, your interest in crocs is not, of course, purely academic. Uh, I know that you have had experiences with Crocs in the in real life. So tell us and our listeners about uh, some of your personal experiences with Crocs. Do you have favorite stories? Absolutely. Most of my, all of my hands-on experience is at the Florida Aquarium when I worked there. Uh, I've gotten to like hold baby Crocs and gators when I've been a tourist other places. But as far as actually getting to interact with them, uh, we would do animal encounters at the aquarium and I get to hold young alligators. The mm-hmm. largest one we had was uh, pushing three and a half feet, probably. And she, she was getting up to a little too big to be held. Yeah. But otherwise they were usually, you know, two and a half foot baby gators. I, the nature center I worked at in New York, we also had a gator whose name I think was Oscar. <laughs> uh, I never held Oscar. I don't think because only the person who ran the animal facility mm-hmm 
would hold him because yeah, he was big and he's he can be bitey if yeah. you're not careful. That was uh, uh, Petra was the one that got big. We also had Glades and uh, uh, Cypress, uh, and Petra was friendly as could be, but was intimidating enough that by the end, before she was uh, moved back to a place where she could grow full size. Only a few people were handling her because right. it was basically it, there's a couple people who were too small to handle her because they were they didn't have the upper body to hold on to this gator if she decided to flex. And that was always interesting with her because she did not wiggle much. The little ones wiggle more often. But every now and then, you know, they'd move and you would just feel the muscle and have those moments of like it. I would be sore. Yeah. If you really tested me, my muscles would be tired. And I always appreciated that. Uh, but also just getting to to be in contact with them and to, you know, get them out of their enclosure and have that interaction. I did get one little bite by I think it was Glade on his uh, hit my first handling with him because he was brand new. So he was still getting used to being an education animal. So he was still being adjusted. So he was a little bit more nippy and mm. bit me on the palm. Felt like a like I scraped my palm on the concrete and not even that bad. So it wasn't anything serious. Didn't break the skin, but I got that one nip, which I was actually very proud of. I, I was going to say, that's great. You did it. I was like, yes, 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 yes. You have been bitten by your favorite animal. It was great. Next episode, next bonus episode, I'll talk about being yes. bitten by my favorite animal. Yep, yep. <laughs> so I, I got to work with them, but I also got to be the, the go-to person for gator feeding talks when they'd feed the big gators, mm-hmm. the two big females we had. Uh, Blue and white were their names. And it was just very early on when I got there. And they're like, we do gator feedings in front of the guests if anyone wants to talk. And I was like, I want to do that, please. That's part of why I came here. I was only looking, I was only applying to places that had crocs. (laughs) I didn't apply to any place that they didn't at least have a gator. And so that's part of the reason you got my application. Can I please go talk at the feeding? And, you know, I gave the talk and then I would talk up the husbandry people the the, the feeders uh, after the they were done i'd ask them like so you did this why did you do that is that typical behavior is this typical and they caught on pretty quick of like all right no no he's actually he's paying close attention and is retaining the information about what all is going on and so it got to the point where i would be the one they'd radio when they were about to feed the the mm-hmm. gators, they'd radio and be like, we're about to feed the gators, is Wilfrey? Right. <laughs> and I'd go up and give the talk. And the it, it hit me how much I had prepared myself and you know, how much I had learned and, and put into that talk when I got ready to leave the aquarium and I was writing out the things for the talk because I was writing down things of like, here are the scenarios where they will feed the gators still in the water. Here are the scenarios where they will not feed because one of the gators won't go to their station. Here are the scenarios. Here's what they do if one gator responds, but the other doesn't, you know, because I I was learning all those things so that in real time, I could just observe and go, all right, what's probably happening right now is this. And that way the handlers didn't have to have the awkward moment of like, send someone out to explain what's Mm -hmm. happening, which is what would often happen. Uh, And I would, it ended up being like multiple pages of, (laughs) Not here's not the script. Here is a description of all the scenarios I can think of and all my right. responses it's for like, that. Like one of those call center yes. sheets where it's like, here's all, here's the tree in situation B, <laughs> see page two. Yeah, it was, it was a ton. And I just had that moment of like, man, I'm going to miss, I'm going to yeah. miss this, but getting, yeah, just getting to learn the ins and outs. And I got to help feed on my la- on like one of my last days I got to feed and toss it in their mouth. And it's, that's that's so cool to hear that mouth clamp shut. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that I've not had a lot of hands on with anything big, but I've gotten to work alongside their training and feeding and and understand it. Yeah. I know you've also seen them in the wild. Yes. I know specifically at least one because <laughs> I was there for it. <laughs> we were on a trip to South Carolina with a, a school group mm-hmm. uh, of graduate students, uh, and we were. In a swamp area, and we got to see a nice big gator. And it swam right over to us, which now I have the understanding of almost surely was being fed by locals. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And that's why it's motored over. It saw I was resting out on a bank, and a bunch of us gathered together uh, to stare at it. And it came down off the bank, vanished into the water, and then a couple minutes later reappeared right underneath us. Yep. 
And at the time, we were like, eh, that might be hunting behavior. But now, right. most likely, yeah, people were throwing stuff. It was it. waiting for food. Uh, you'll see that behavior very commonly and is uh, why you're advised not to, because we were at a very safe distance from this at least 10 foot gator. Yeah. And then we were suddenly at a not safe distance. No, if it had <laughs> wanted to, it could have bit a foot. Yeah. Like right? it, we, we were up, a, uh, up mm-hmm. a few feet. Like we weren't right at water level. But if it had wanted to jump up. Or if we had slipped. You know, if one of us had yeah. slipped into the water. That's, that's the issue is not so much that it's going to cause an attack. But now we were close enough that an accident could put us face to face with one another. Right. And so that's, that was what almost surely was happening there. Uh, and then since then I've got, I had gators in my backyard when I lived down there for a little bit. Uh, and that's the biggest thing I miss from living in Florida is whenever I come across <laughs> a body of water now, I check them like, Gator, oh no, they're, they're not here in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Extending off of that, is there an experience you'd like to have or is there a particular species you'd like to meet? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I would be happy to meet any species I haven't gotten to meet up close. The only ones I've gotten to actually interact with is American alligator and uh, saltwater crocodile, which I got to hold a baby Ooh. when I visited Australia. They cool. they would, had it so you could hold and take pictures. Uh, that was about the same size as the ones we worked with. So, you know, between two to three feet. So I've not had any other hands-on interactions with any other species. Uh, so I'd love any, any, absolutely any other species I can get a finger on. I would be, I would be happy to just two finger touch <laughs> along the back, whatever it is. Uh, I have had interest in like learning how to, you know, move and negotiate large. They have training programs for learning how to handle large crocodilians and right. you like know. the people who either either working them with them in a zoo mm-hmm. or perhaps also I would assume people who work with like animal control. Yes. Or how to get a croc out of somebody or a gator out of someone's mm-hmm. pool or something. Well, and often like even if you're working in a zoo situation, if you want to move them from A to B, you still have to do a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, because certain species are much, you know, are going to be more skittish no matter how well trained they are. So you're still going to have to kind of tackle them and rope them and tie them up to move them just because they're they're a large animal and you have to get them into the crate somehow. Yeah. Uh, but there's things like that. I've always wanted to do. Uh, it's at Crocosaurus Cove where it's a diving, uh, uh like a like shark cave, I- but an acrylic tube. That they lower into one of their big croc habitats. I was going to ask, mm-hmm. do, are there places that do like swimming with crocs? Yeah. This is uh, uh, this is the only one that I, I know of commercially. Uh, and it used to be a shark cage because Jeff Corwin did it. And then while filming the croc swept sideways through the camera hole of the shark cage. Whoops. <laughs> in there with him and came back out. And I checked up on it. Later on when I was like, is that place still a thing? And I was like, it is. They now have an acrylic tube <laughs> with no openings. Uh, but yeah, they they put you in and they just do a feeding demonstration. One of the normal feedings with the big croc mm-hmm. off to the side of your tube so you can see the croc moving around and feeding while you're in there. That's cool. It's, ah, yeah. I, yeah that's on my fun. bucket list. <laughs> Very cool. One of the questions that uh, we get asked a lot, uh, both during the setup for this Bonus episode and otherwise. <clears throat> Do you have a favorite species, living or extinct? Uh, multiple answers are acceptable. I have a. I will always have a special place for the American alligator because that was my research topic. So I, I'm mm-hmm. intimately familiar with their skulls. And they're also neighbors. They're neighbors. Those so are I've, the ones that live here. I've gotten to see them my whole life, and they're just they're so uh, peaceful and chill and serene as far as crocodilians go favorite though since i was little has always leaned toward the saltwater crocodile of australia and the philippines the estuarian crocodile which is the biggest and so it's got it hits that that just little kid category of it's the biggest and therefore partially the coolest no it's so big but i'm also admire them because they are hyper aggressive like they're very well known for their aggression both toward people, but also other crocodilians. Right. They're, they're quick to fight. Yeah, they're very territorial, which is not the same as you will find in other species, where like saltwaters, a big male will hold a territory and have their females in that territory, and then that will be it. Mm-hmm. Whilst a lot of others, like Nile crocs and American alligators and plenty of others, they will have a sense of territory, but not not nearly to that 
extreme degree. It'll much more be this big male will chase the other males out during mating season, you know, or will chase out males that are big enough to be a threat. But small males could hang around and not every female there is is their, you know, mated female. It's just they will be more competitive, but they don't guard a territory the same way. Mm-hmm. So saltwater crocodiles are unusually aggressive in their their uh, behavior toward other organisms. And then they're huge and they go out in the ocean and they actively, you know, stalk people. So they are right. they are <laughs> they're movie monsters in real life. And I've always thought that was cool. Uh, but I, I mean, I have a soft spot for almost every every one of them for some like, reason. or You another. don't have to choose. You know, there's, yeah. there's not a whole lot to choose from. You can find something to love about each one. Yeah, there is something pretty neat about each one. Like Cuban Crocs have always been up there for me because mm-hmm. they are really fast on land. They're the famous ones for doing that gallop and they yep. jump really well. And they're, they're just spunky. And that's awesome. Gharials are adorable and, and you know, so weird looking, but just, you know, cute and harmless. Fossil wise, I Dinosuchus and the big ones have always been nice. I They're huge. They're awesome. As people of the podcast know, Simosuchus, the little herbivorous croc, yep. is always been a favorite for me. I'm a huge fan of any terrestrial croc, just because the idea of a croc specialized for running is too cool to pass up. Yeah, a croc that moved out of the water yep. and went, this is good. Barosuchus and, and its cousins, as well as like the Mekosukians and stuff like those are awesome. Yeah. So yeah, it it's saltwater will always will always probably win out if I have to pick a singular favorite. Pars- and it was solidified when I got to go to Australia and met at I don't know if he's still alive, but it was a croc named Jack the Ripper, and it was at a conservation uh uh you know like rescue center and a nature center and his habitat was below a walkway so you know about eight or ten feet down from this edge of this railing and at the time he was laying out in the open basking in the sun and he was a 17 foot male saltwater crocodile which is about as big as it gets that's that is their that is their upper size there have been ones that break that but Mm. typically that's about as big as you'll find and his stomach was three times my shoulder width at that time. I turned 13, so I wasn't as big as I am now, but still would be twice as wide as I am currently. His teeth were as big as my thumb, like just yeah. gazing at this 17 foot crocodile. And he had a habitat with a water feature and a sign warning you not to lean over the railing when he's in the water because he <laughs> could tail jump up and reach you. Yeah. <laughs> like that. The railing is only a little more than half his length up. And that that kind of solidified it. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. That's like meeting. Well, I've, t- I've talked about before when people ask us where, if you could go back in time. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about the feeling of standing next to a sauropod yes. or big dinosaurs and just that. You don't have to go back in time. Like I've heard from people who talk about what it's like to swim next to whales. Yes. Things like that. There is something just amazing about being in the presence of an animal like that yeah well it, so big so powerful so distinctive it connects back to what i was saying but instantly you have that feeling of absolutely i am not top of the food chain right now right when i leave here sure but whenever i am in proximity to one of these i am not at the top of the food chain mm-hmm. and that that's a kind of surreal realization of it would be it would not be a difficulty for you to take me down mm-hmm. like i'd be a big animal for some other predators to take down sure but a big croc like that wouldn't even be a, a strenuous activity <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to questions about research so you uh have also done research regarding crocodilians indeed tell us about that what did your research entail so uh, I stumbled into my research because I came to ETSU because it was a fossil site near where I lived. Sure. That, incidentally, for everybody, East Tennessee State yes. University, that's the university where the two of us got our master's degrees. And is connected with the Gray Fossil Site, uh, where David currently works and I've worked in the past. Mm-hmm. And I came here wanting to learn paleontology, and they asked, what things are you interested in? And I was like, well, you know, dinosaurs are cool and very upfront. Jim, who was the one giving the tour at the time, was like, all right, well, we don't have those and no one studies those. So right. next, <laughs> and I was like, I also like crocodilians. He's like, we have those. I went, yeah. cool, I'll sign up and ended up with Blaine as my advisor, who 
is one of the alligator researchers at the site uh, and specializes in those. And so he and I got to talking and you know, had that question of like, do you have any ideas for your research? And I was like, no, <laughs> I, I have no idea. Crocodilians, period. Yes, I I am not ne- at that point, not nearly confident enough to even <laughs> posit my own question. And so he said, well, here's an idea I've had and you could do. And that the idea was to study the individual bones of the alligator skull and how they change as alligators grow so that we could have an idea of a does the skull change different amounts at different parts? You know, does this bone change way more than this bone? Does the front change more than the back? What kind of growth and change are we seeing as you go from baby to adult? Because we already know tons about the way the face shapes, shape changes in alligators, but it hadn't been looked at what each bone was doing. Mm -hmm. And the hope would then be that having those individual bones better understood would allow when we find individual skull bones of a crocodilian or, you know, in this case, alligator cousin would allow us to better ID them and potentially get a better idea of the age or at least what shape of face that crocodilian had when we don't have the rest of the skull. Right. You could just get fragments and make exciting extrapolations that you wouldn't otherwise be able to make if you hadn't studied these changes in detail. We find a nose bone, but we don't find anything else. But we might be able to say this nose bone looks most similar to a juvenile Mm -hmm. alligator than it does to an adult alligator. So it may have either been a young individual or an adult with a shape of a with a face shape more like a baby. And this was particularly relevant to the crew at ETSU because we have fossil gators at the Gray Fossil Site. Yes, indeed. My studies were all on modern gators, and we had a number in the collection that I pulled from. I got some extra ones from my cousins down in Louisiana who had hunting buddies who they don't use the bones. They use the meat and the skin. Mm -hmm. So the skulls and skeleton typically are just garbage. So if you contact the right people, you can get these excess bones uh, with one of the bones damaged because the way you hunt an alligator is by doing a bullet shot to the skull Yeah, because a shot anywhere else is not going to be for sure lethal. (laughs) Not a guaranteed uh, last shot. So like a zombie, you have to go for a brain shot. (laughs) (laughs) Another list of the reasons they're awesome. And so we got these skulls and I did my research, found some cool trends in the way bones shape changes You know, things like we knew their eyes got smaller as they went from proportionally to the head from as they went from baby to adult, as most animals, you know, tend to do where you have big eyes for your skull for the size of your head as a baby. And then as an adult, relatively, your eyes are much smaller, Mm -hmm. partially because your eyes come in more fully formed and don't do as much growing as the rest of your body. Right. The skull develops around. them. Yeah. So you have more or less adult-sized and shaped eyes when you're a young animal and then your skull gets bigger around it. And we know that, but we also noted that they moved back in the head. And what we found, which one bone grows longer to follow the orbit back and move with the eye. So really only that bone is the one doing much shifting when the eye shape changes. We also noted that the snout lengthens as they grow, but we found that really it's just the eyes moving back more so than the snout elongating. Once they reached above, you know, hatchling size, their snout shape did not actually change much. The bones that held the teeth were the same shape, but the eye was continuously shifting backwards Mm -hmm. as it got smaller and smaller in the skull. So we found some interesting things. We lacked enough specimens to publish with, Mm -hmm. mostly because we did not have many young specimens hard to get baby alligator skeletons and that's where we ran into a problem is that we would have needed to get baby skeletons which things like alligator farms would have plenty of those but alligators have a unique morphology often when they are in human care where their teeth will splay out and kind of point horizontal to the face instead of that perpendicular to the jaw movement. It'll you, you see this in zoos a lot. Very commonly. Very common in alligator farms. We're not sure what the cause is. I've talked to multiple people. It could be a nutritional thing. It could be a behavioral thing. It could be if they have concrete in their habitat, laying on the concrete, puts stress on the bone. It could be that not having to use their jaw strength to tear apart prey is allowing the bone to grow oddly because it's not under the same strain. 
I've found a couple of researchers, researchers dealing in it, and they don't know, ha, state a trend, nor even a difference in jaw strength. They have the same bite force. Interesting. But it does mean that it would throw off a study like this. Right. Because the actual shape of the bones is being affected by the fact that they're in captivity. And that is the focus of that study. So it right. needs to ideally be confirmed wild caught specimens. Right. And... I don't know how one goes about getting the okay to go catch undersized alligators with the intent to kill and get harvest the, skulls. Get, get the skulls out, yeah. Like, I don't know that there is a, <laughs> a yeah. set, set of forms that I could fill out to get yeah. the okay to do that. Probably the way you would do that nowadays is to catch the gators and then scan, you know, yes. do like a CT scan of the yeah. skull while they're alive and then look at those individual bones. And so uh, my research ended up not being fully published. You know, it's in the ETSU databank, so you mm-hmm. can still get access to it as, as a student, but uh, it is uh, never went past thesis because I didn't have a way for us to get new skulls. I contacted multiple museums, and most of them did not have juvenile skulls, and if they did, they were intact, so I would have had to get the okay to take them apart. Right. And I did not have the know-how to do any of the CT scanning and computer mm-hmm. versions. So that would have been a whole nother task for me to learn. And by that point, I was in my last year. And so we ex- we decided it just wouldn't go to publication just yet. And maybe if I have the time after graduation, <laughs> I can come back. And I quickly realized I do not have the time nor funds right. to keep chasing this down. But the paper, the paper is out there. It is. Uh, so people who decide to do things like that in the future have this as a potential, uh, if not peer-reviewed, at least, you know, a professor and a student liked it. Yes. And it it is something people can build off of. <laughs> I don't remember the title right off. It was a very, it was uh, uh, the ontogeny of the alligator Mississippians as cranial elements or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can find it in the ETSU databank <laughs> if you go looking. <laughs> Uh, This next question is particularly relevant to studies like yours. What are your favorite ways that we use modern crocs to understand fossil crocs? Yes. So obviously your research is an example of doing that. Mm -hmm. And we use, you know, almost any time we're looking into behavior or function in fossil crocs will be a study on modern crocs. And bite force is a very common, you know, Mm -hmm. feature both for shape of skull and shape of teeth, because a lot of times we'll find a fossil croc with an oddly shaped skull. So we'll go, okay, let's take in all the data from today's crocs and how they bite and what they eat, and then see where that skull fits closest or between and get an idea for it probably was biting somewhere around these species strength. And therefore it could have been eating this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So you'll see lots of stuff on that of trying to find where the... Because snout shape is so variable as you go across groups and throughout the fossil record. We've seen the same shaped skull show up multiple, multiple times. So there are multiple studies on how do we interpret the shape of skulls and what does that tell us about what that croc might have been doing. Uh, you'll also see it with things like you know the biomechanics of their skeleton in what kind of walking posture or, you know, walking behaviors might we see. And even though today's crocs are not as diverse as we find in the fossil record, we do still have enough diversity to start leaning us in one direction or the other. Uh, if your legs are more like a gharials, you're not jumping around like a Cuban croc. Right. But if it's more like a Cuban croc, then you might be a bit more mobile on land. And so we can at least get some inklings one way or the other. And because of how well uh, their skulls often fossilize since they are tough, tough elements. And because at least today, all crocs have faces that are shaped like their skull. Yep. They don't have big fleshy cheeks and soft parts and floppy ears like we do. What you see on the skull is more or less what you're going to get on the outside. We can actually get some really good interpretations of what this croc very likely looked like, or at least close to what they very likely look like when we have a skull because we understand today's so well. One of my favorite examples, and it's one I think we've talked about before, is that research that I think Stephanie Drumheller did this uh, on death rolls. Yes, yes, yes. Where looking at how death rolling as a behavior is distributed among modern crocs to interpret that which ancient crocs were likely able to do a death roll as well. Absolutely. Uh, And the result being probably all of them. Yep, 
<laughs> yeah, it's it is. There's really not that many today that can't use that behavior to some extent because a lot of them will use it when they're just trying to get away, you know, as right. a way to like wrench themselves out of a grasp or out of a, a being held. And so it's an it's a defensive mechanism a lot of the time as well. But as long as you have robust enough jaws, it is a useful thing, especially if you're just pulling off chunks of meat. Yep. The thing I find interesting when we look at a lot of the today's is when we find behaviors that do range, like the galloping behavior is seen in the young of many species and only in the adults of really the Cuban and freshwater croc, uh, the other croc species in Australia. But from the research that was done, they didn't find any like mechanical reason why alligators can't do it. They just seem to not do it. Right. So like physically, it, everything seems to line up that they should be capable of this behavior, but they don't do the behavior. They never gallop, even when they're younger. And so we can also start looking into the, that variety and trying to tease out those differences between today's group might help us get that idea closer for fossil groups. And I... I it's fun when we get to zoom in on very, very specific features like death rolling and galloping. Yeah, yeah. On a related note, our next research-related question. What are your favorite scientific mysteries about crocs? Yeah. What are your favorite things that we still don't know or don't understand? Absolutely. I think my favorite one that I always come back to, partially because I did a paper on it and did a presentation on it back when we were in grad school, is... The mystery of what we call longerostrine crocs, which is long and skinny snouted crocs. And so we break up croc snouts typically into the shortened stout, which typically the alligator would be considered, but like your dwarf crocodile and dwarf caiman today are even better examples. The mid-ranged, which is going to be Nile crocodiles, and then the long snouted, which is Garial, false garial, freshwater crocodile, the slender snout crocodile today, and then some that get close to that. And typically and traditionally, those snouts we would assumed broke up the food choices as well. That the short stout snouts, like gators and most of your caimans, are generalists. These are good for tough food, like like turtles and shellfish, but they are also good at taking fish, you know, and small mammals. Whilst the mid-range snouts, your Nile croc, your saltwater croc, are good for robust prey, as well as, you know, still being flexible. You know, they can still take fish, obviously, but they're specialized often for big, heavy-duty prey. Mm. Livestock and, you know, kangaroos and deer-sized stuff. While the skinny snouts are specialized for aquatic food moving through the water more easily and grabbing at fish and slippery things yeah, exactly. that are hard to hold on to. They often have very long, skinny, sharp teeth instead of the more robust crushing teeth that you see in an alligator. But when we've actually looked at the diets, we found that it doesn't always line up, especially with slender snout crocs, where the gharial, which is by far the slenderest snouted croc today, very much does lean toward a very aquatic diet. That one lines up, but then the false gharial, which has only slightly less of an extreme snout. It's just not quite as long, not quite as thin, but they hunt wild pigs. They hunt fish. They hunt monkeys. Mm. They have even been documented to take down and consume humans. Ooh. So like they are taking down large, robust prey. And I read an, uh, an anecdotal situation of a caretaker who was used to working with gharials and had moved facilities and was now working with false gharials to Mistema and was so used to being careful with his stick. Because you often have a stick when you go in with a habitat with multiple crocs, so you can put it between you and them. Mm -hmm. It's a very common tool. It's a good way to target them and say, come here to get your food, but also to have a barrier between you and them so that you can move it to intercept if they decide to get bitey. And he was very used to being delicate around the gharials because their snout was so delicate that if they swung their head and he had the stick in the way and didn't move it, he could break their snout. Yeah. You know, he could cause damage. And he was being very delicate around the false gharials. And then one of them swung defensively and snapped the snick in half. <laughs> and he vaulted over the fence. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> and had to have that moment of like, okay, different animals. So we've, we have found that our pigeonholing of the snout shape could be very, very misleading and has been for today's species. 
So when we looked at fossils, because we see that slender snout evolve over and over and over and over, and it seemed to support a lot of the ocean going, the marine crocs mm -hmm. have that slender snout. So it seemed to support our thoughts, but now you have to take take a look at today's and say, there's a bunch of those that could be eating much more robust prey than we have been assuming. Right. The link between snout shape and diet is not as clear cut as it first seemed. Yes. And the slender snouts have also made figure out who's related to who very tricky. Yes, which is also a famous thing with the mm. false gharial. Absolutely. We've been debating on where to place the false gharial in the croc family tree. Some studies leaning it closer to gharials when you look at the, the uh, uh, certain aspects of the genetics. And then some studies looking more at the skull, leaning it closer to crocs, you know, true crocodiles. And then various evidences shifting that back and forth. And nowadays it is grouped with the gharials, most commonly is what you'll see. And so it is now another form of gharial, basically. But because their snouts have evolved so similarly, it is very hard to figure out whether it's from their descendants, you know, who they descended from or convergently. And when we look at the fossils, the same thing will show up. Yeah. Where we'll have two groups with very similar shaped skulls, but maybe that's just because you were doing the same thing. Right. And this is that same shaped skull has evolved multiple times, millions of years apart. So sometimes where it's like, no way you two can be the same group because you're too far apart, but you look basically the same. Mm -hmm. So this this slender snout has continually popped up as just a, a very, very complicated aspect of crocodilian evolution and behavior. Yeah. A very cool topic. Yeah. And it's the focus is on the mouth and the t the thing you'd expect us to know a bunch about. Yep. The shape of the snout, kind of the defining feature of a crocodilian. And yet there's more to learn. Yep. Well, yeah. And especially the fact that it's like you both are using chopsticks, but one of you is eating <laughs> sushi with it and the other is eating steak. Uncut right. steak. <laughs> right. <laughs> the reason that June is croc month is because World Croc Day is in June. And World Croc Day is a day about conservation of crocs. So one of the things that we like to make sure to talk about is conservation efforts and appreciation of these animals. So let's talk a bit about not only conservation, but also how we communicate about crocs. Will, what are the main threats that modern crocs are dealing with? So historically, by far, one of the largest issues was overhunting. Right. There have been multiple across the planet endeavors to effectively eradicate different species. Right. Humans just going out and killing crocs, often with the intention of, can we make this a croc-free space? Yes. Can we get rid of this issue to my typical livestock is the, the mm -hmm. often the motivation behind it. Uh, there's famous stories here in North America of, you know, ranchers losing cattle when they would bring them, when they'd be moving them and bring them to a watering hole and a gator would take one of them. And that the practice just became to go into watering holes and pull out and kill any gators first before watering your cattle. And just it became common practice of just like you would disinfect a station before you work on it. You just degator a place before you go to work in it. And there were bounties set. And, you know, this also goes for the saltwater crocodile in Australia had a very similar treatment. Also, skin trade has been big for a lot of species. Still today, there are numerous species that are more threatened than others because of trading of the skin. And there have been instances of exotic pet trade threatening some. But overhunting has been a huge issue for many. Habitat loss has also been an issue. But crocs are very resilient and flexible in their behavior. So one of the issues that they run into is... Habitat loss will threaten and reduce their usable space, but they will often still push into the areas that used to be their habitat, right. making them clash with humans all the more, which in the past only exasperated that urge to let yeah, hunting to, continue. To kill all the crops. Exactly. So the fact that they did not just get pushed back with the reduction of their habitat often would exasperate human croc relations. Yeah. You know, the classics of finding them in your swimming pool, finding them on golf courses, finding them in human territory, which, right. but only you know a number of centuries ago was croc territory. That's where they live. Mm -hmm. That's where the crocs are from. So 
those are the big things. Nowadays, I know pollution in some areas has been threatening certain groups. Uh, you also get unusual threats with the, the Cuban crocodile currently being uh, a concern due to overbreeding with the American crocodile. Oh, yeah. And that American and Cuban crocodiles can hybridize, but the hybrids look much more like an American crocodile than they do a Cuban crocodile. The American crocodile traits overpower the Cuban ones. So the hybrids are basically just more American crocodiles. Mm -hmm. So the features we think of as being Cuban crocodiles could disappear if this breeding goes unchecked. And if the Cuban crocodile populations are not uh, protected in their habitats, not allowed to to remain ideal for them. But th that those are the big ones that I can think of. A lot are connected to people directly hunting them. That right. is still skin trade, meat trade, and seeing them as threats is still a big threat to a number of species. Yeah, even as you were saying before about gator hunters here in the U.S. and the southeastern parts of the U.S., that's how they deal with gators. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who that's their job. Yes. And nowadays it's regulated, you know, so like deer, right. you get a certain number of tickets that you can go and collect that many gators. Mm -hmm. And if you bring back more than that, you're now poaching. So nowadays we have regulations. I'm pretty sure it's pretty similar in Australia. And I would assume there are similar laws uh, other places because nowadays every species is protected, which is unusual, yeah. but not all to the same degree. Right. Yeah, there are some that are protected, but they're not being enforced as much as we would like, or that those protections may have come too late. Yeah. Uh, but others, like the saltwater and America, the saltwater crocodile and the American alligator, uh, their protections kicked in, and now populations have bounced back. Right, those species are doing really yes. well, uh, basically as well as they were before we started culling them. So. There have been numerous success stories as well. Yeah, there are some species, and of course some species are more endangered mm -hmm. than others. Things like Cuban crocs are dealing with a lot of issues. Chinese alligators, yep. I know, are highly endangered. And many of these also had already narrow ranges. You know, right. Cuban crocs are named because they are Cuban. Right. <laughs> you know, they are not found across a vast swath of a continent like the American alligator is, or across... A continent and many, many islands like the saltwater right, like Oceania. Exactly. <laughs> so the Chinese alligator was a narrow range. The Cuban crocodile is a narrow range. Uh, gharials also. Now, they used to be more widespread, but they are, I believe, they had a dip fossil-wise and then started getting targeted by people. Yeah. So a lot of them, it's recently they might be less distributed than they were. Um, and so many of those are the ones still in dire threats like gharials are one of the most endangered and are just easily targeted by poaching and don't have as many protected areas as people would like yeah on to our next question what are the most common misunderstandings or misrepresentations of crocs this is an interesting one because it it kind of depends which species you're talking about or which country you're talking about because, you know, when I worked in Florida and would be talking to people about gators, I'd get lots of people, especially people who had recently moved to Florida, mm -hmm. who would be kind of like, hey, so whilst we're talking next to the giant toothy reptile, how <laughs> scared do I need to be? <laughs> like, I just moved here from a non-gatored state. How nervous should I be? You know, are these actually as dangerous as they're often made out to be? And in that situation, I could very, very resolutely go, no. No, they are not nearly as dangerous as TV makes them out to be. Gators, it is extremely rare that there's a human incident with gators. They, there's there's very few that happens across a year, and most are not fatal. Mm -hmm. They are much more likely to flee from you. And if something does happen, it's often involving a pet. So you do need to keep track of them. And... The other situation is if they've been fed. So if you see right. that happening, report it because that's can set up the danger. But otherwise, we got one of the safest crocodilians here in North America right. that we could ask for. You have to be careful mm -hmm. and you have to be aware, but you don't have to worry about being chased down the street or yes. hunted or any anything monstery with these. Absolutely. If I gave that advice in Australia, I would be irresponsible. Right. <laughs> no, no, you, that actually is a very dangerous yes. animal. In Australia, they have a, a education system that they often call crocwise, mm -hmm. which is teaching about when you're next to the water, 
keep these things in mind. You know, travel with a buddy. Keep your eye behind you because crocodiles will follow you when you're not looking at them because mm -hmm. they're smart enough to follow your eye line. You know, don't play in the water that you aren't familiar with. If you're going to get water from an area, keep your eyes up, not down. Right. You know, all of those sort of things, very similar patterns of education are used in parts of Africa with Nile crocodiles because those are active threats if you're having to live off of the natural waterways mm -hmm. of your land. Yeah, these are animals that will see you as prey. Yeah, will stake out those places. Yes. And so, like, they've had to make notes of get water from different places or set up a barrier, a fence, that that's the only place you get water from because it's not big enough for a big croc to get into. Right. <laughs> and if you go outside of that, you have to realize you might be putting yourself in danger so it, it can be kind of complicated when it comes to misconceptions because alligators have a ton of their, their you know, want to eat people. You know, you have the whole, how do you run away from an alligator? You run zigzag because they can't turn correctly. And the right. truth is you don't run away from an alligator. You walk you away do, from it calmly. You walk lazily in the other yeah. direction. You stroll While, while it watches you. Yeah. yeah. They don't chase <laughs> after people. And if you run away from any animal, you run in a straight line. <laughs> zigzag right. is the is only good for if you're being shot at that's when you serpentine <laughs> otherwise you just run so like gators don't chase people they aren't aggressive on land you know these are not common features there are, of course will be exceptions just like any animal there will be some random individual of that species that decides to do something very weird but nine times out of ten you don't have to worry about how you're gonna flee from an alligator if it's on land and you're on land, you both are pretty much harmless to each other. It's a, it's a very similar set of misconceptions that surround most predatory yes. animals. Just the, the notion that they are far more dangerous or far more unpredictable than they actually can be. But then you have situations where other species actually can be quite hazardous to be mm -hmm. near. So it it can be tricky. It's It's... It's very similar to when talking about venomous species of spiders or snake or whatnot. And people will have, well, here's the rule. It's like, mm, that's the rule here in Georgia. Right. But if you go to another state or another country, that rule could be completely different because you're dealing with a whole different host of that, that group. Yes. It's kind of like that. The safety rules around crocodilians really only works with the, the area you're talking about. You know, here in North America, we have the American alligator, the American crocodile, and a very small population of speckle, uh, spectacled caimans. And that's about it. And the caimans are not typically big enough to be a threat. The croc and gators are, but both are fairly skittish species. Mm -hmm. So they are not commonly a threat to people. They're just a threat to pets. So here in North America, you're kind of safe as long as you're not being just unreasonably irresponsible. Of like, well, they said it was safe, so I'm going to go give it a big old hug. <laughs> now, if you don't know what you're doing, don't go near it, but you don't have to worry about it coming to get you. Yeah. But that is not always the case. So the misconceptions kind of varies. And like, yeah. I'm sure there are misconceptions about others that, you know, might have them being more aggressive or that, you know, if you take these lessons and go to another country, being like, well, no, crocs are big and lazy. Well, not Cuban Crocs. Right, not here. <laughs> Those are feisty and spunky. They will they will chase you out of their habitat. Yeah. So it depends. Yeah, so it seems like when it comes to Crocs, a lot of the most important misconceptions or misrepresentations are just misconstruing the danger. Yeah. Not necessarily that there isn't danger, because, yeah, basically all of them oh, are. Yes. Yeah, they're all big enough to bite, give you a bad bite if... If something goes wrong, any large animal can send you to the hospital. Right. But it's about understanding what actually is the danger here and what can we do about that danger? Yes. What needs to be done in order to mitigate uh, the potential threat uh, with these animals? Absolutely. Well, moving on from that topic to our last question about conservation and communication, conservation efforts trying to protect animals from the threats that they're dealing with often relies on getting people invested mm -hmm. in those things. Because it's not just about the scientists doing it. You need support, you need community assistance, you need funding, all that sorts of stuff. This can be notoriously difficult. So in your opinion, and based on what you know of what has happened in the world, how do we get people invested in crocs? How yeah. do you get people to care about and connect with crocodilians? Well, the, the nice thing with this group is 
evidently and historically, it is surprisingly easy mm. for, as far as a big predator and historically threatened group of animals goes. Every species today is under some sort of governmental protection. Uh, there's not a single one that's not listed as protected. Uh, even the ones that are currently listed as least concern. You know, mm-hmm. the American alligator, their population is booming. They are doing quite well, but we still have them under protection laws. We allow regulated hunting to help, you know, mitigate population in some areas and to keep the economy that would be sought after by poachers mm-hmm. going in a legal sense. But they are still protected. So something about these large, sometimes dangerous predators does strike a chord with people. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, they are big, impressive local animals. You well, know. it's got a, that what you were talking about before of they are awesome yes in in the classical sense Mm -hmm. they they inspire awe they are very cool and very fascinating creatures yes and they they are you know we only have between 24 to 26 species today depending on which split you currently lean into but that many species with a handful of subspecies but we have a spread of basically every continent you know minus antarctica and and europe specifically but every landmass other than than our one covered in ice <laughs> has its crocodilians and has its own crocodilians usually you know even if there are ones that spread like the american crocodile is both in south and north america but we also have the american alligator which is only north american south america has caimans which are only south american Africa has its African crocodiles. Mm-hmm. India has its crocodile crocodilians. Australia has its. The, you know, so you have each section has their kind of characteristic croc. So I, I think there's a sense of local pride in that, like people who live in the states that have alligators identify with being states that have alligators. Like you see that it's they're the national yeah. animals. They're team animals. Yeah, they're the Florida gators mm-hmm. very famously. They are all, all over merchandise and logos mm-hmm. and companies. And you'll see that in other countries as well, where you will see them plastered and that it is this very, there's this connection that this is our croc. You know, right. we live in this, this country, this continent, and we have this kind of croc. And that seems to be something that is not only pretty consistent around the world today, but historically, like crocs are significant symbols in tons of cultures and in plenty of religious and cultural practices. Crocs have been a big deal. Yes. I think another reason why it's different with them than other predators is a lot of other predators, you're either in their environment or you're not. And... Whenever you're in their environment, that's the only time you can see. Like, if you're in the forest, you're in with the wolves. If you're in the water, you're in with sharks. Crocs live on the edge of the water between, you know, on the shore is their feeding ground. But if I stand up on the shore, I can observe a croc and be completely safe. You know, if I'm 20 feet back, I can get out of the way when that croc starts moving toward me. So there's tons of times where you can just observe them. Yeah, you just watch them from afar. And so you can see them in the wild. Kind of similarly to the way you'd see them in a zoo. You know, you still want to be a safe distance back, but that happens constantly. People on boats seeing them, people on shores, on docks seeing them, and there being no further interaction. And you have the knowledge of, well, I'm far enough from the water's edge that that crocodile, no matter how motivated, can't get to me quickly enough. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's this unusual thing where, like, you can't observe a shark the same way because you'll only see the fin. You know, you can't observe a wolf the same way because now you're on the same ground that it's on. <laughs> so I th- I wonder if there's an aspect of these are large predators, but we can be kind of, we can view them in a kind of detached way. Well, it makes it easier to do that thing that conservation efforts are so often trying to do, which is get people to understand these animals and relate to these animals. It's much easier when you can just point at one. And yes. Go, yeah, there it is. Just hanging out. Yeah. Like in the same environment that we're in, it it makes it a little bit easier to think of them as neighbors. Yes, exactly. And not as mysterious monsters from the deep or yeah. something like that. That That's exactly what I was going to say is it means that our civilizations across the globe have been able to exist alongside them mm-hmm. without competing for the same 
you know, space all the time. Like, you know, gators and crocs aren't typically coming up into people's houses. It's happened, mm-hmm. and it definitely can happen. Right. But And obviously we encroach on their habitat. Like, it's not a perfect yes. balance. But, like, you know, if it starts raining, a wolf or a big cat might go into a, a shelter, <laughs> you know, a human-built shelter looking for safety from the rain, just like we would. We're... It, we're inhabiting inhabiting the same environment with those animals, so I think that's we often clash with them because mm, I don't want you in my yard because that's my yard. But if the crocs in the water, I don't live in the water, so you have a a disconnect, and there's not that that same competitiveness. Maybe I've always wondered what it is about them that makes it us feel you know, historically that that we have not just wiped out crocs across history. You know, there's been a couple times with hunting. But earlier civilizations have coexisted with crocs for centuries and centuries and documented it, you know, heavily. So something about the way we share environments allows us to be near these big, potentially dangerous animals and still allow each other to exist. And it potentially makes it easier to do the educational work Mm -hmm. that is part of conservation. You're taking advantage of this sense that seems to be, in many cases, already kind of there. Yeah. It's like, it reminds me of how we've said before, it's not hard to get people excited about paleontology. We have dinosaurs. Yes. Like that, half the job is done. We have, there is a dinosaur in this museum. You already came in the door. We're just taking advantage of a fascination that already exists. With crocs, there seems to be some degree of that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it is very intriguing how they have, balance themselves and how we have balanced our lives with them throughout human history. Cause there's mm-hmm. just tons of examples of human societies that have latched on to crocodilians as, you know, representation, but also just as part of their stories and as, you know, part of their culture. And that has, that, that is something that we still do today, even if it's more commercialized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like the, the sensation around crocs is, feels like it's as often, awe as it is fear yes and i well, and i think they they do strike an aspect of you know we are intrigued by fear it's why we make horror movies that there is something exciting and maybe maybe crocs give that because you can see them and be afraid but you can still stand you don't have to run mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see them go oh my gosh there is an alligator in that water i'm kind of scared right now but i know that i don't have to hightail it to the car i can just keep an eye on the gator and make sure it doesn't get closer than I'm comfortable with. And so maybe it's that they give a, a safe way to have, to observe scary animals. Once again, I'm not suggesting to just chill out on the riverbank next to <laughs> crocs, but that it is very, very common that we can observe them in their natural habitat, both being safe from one another. When you were teaching with crocs, did you encounter people who had like wild misconceptions or who had to learn to change their perspectives on them. Yeah. The, the being chased is probably one of the biggest ones because that is taught in Florida school rooms, like, like elementary school classrooms will teach kids Mm. gator safety. And one of them will be run zigzag. Like I've heard people who are like, I was taught that in school. I was told that (laughs) in classroom (laughs) And, you know, that's one of those where it's like, that's a harmless myth because... Right, you're not going to hurt anybody doing no, that. The, the person you're most likely to hurt is yourself trying to attempt zigzag yes. run. You're going <laughs> to twist an ankle. But, you know, if, you, if you're if you moving faster than walking, you're already safer than you, <laughs> than you could possibly be near an alligator. That's probably the biggest one just because that is so ingrained. Mm-hmm. And it's such... It's kind of like, you know, the, the your blood being blue before you draw it. Sure, sure. You know, before it hits oxygen that it's just shared so often people have trouble letting go of it uh the other just being that they that because they're a predator they are just waiting for a chance to get you right uh they they have a taste for humans and they want it yep and you know me the the easiest tool was holding a gator and right that that dissipates a lot of it especially since we didn't tape our jaws of our Mm -hmm. gators they were free to open their mouth which was actually important because that would let us know when they were getting stressed. Yes. Because if you see a gator with an open mouth, it either is basking to cool itself off or it is a slight threat display to say, I'm, I'm uncomfortable right I'm, now. I'm going to display my teeth now to remind you that I have these and I will use these if you push me far enough. So it 
there every now and then you'll see like promotional things or people saying like, look, a smiling gator because its mouth. So no, that is mouth open and its eyes are closed. That is an annoyed, stressed out gator. Right. Uh, In case anyone has seen that one video that goes around (laughs) all the time. And I think it's another really great thing about gators and crocs, depending on where you are, that they are also fairly accessible. Yes. You can go to an aquarium or a nature center and there you can have a gator and get up close with it and see it and learn about it. And one of the great things about the fact that really the only ones you can do that with are the the young ones. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't really do that very easily with an adult gator. Yeah, not, you not. can't show it around a classroom. <laughs> But you can do it with baby gators, and baby gators are adorable. They really are. So you get to meet the cute version. Yeah. Well, and, and like, if if anyone ever needs to get help get over their fear of gators or crocs, <laughs> if you can, like, watch the young ones being fed, because they'll chirp when they get fed. Yeah. And so they'll do their little baby, ow, ow, like, chirp, and... It's almost better once they're getting a little bit too big to do that because their voice changes <laughs> and it goes into a more of a. <laughs> and it's like, oh, man, you don't sing it the same yeah. octave as you yeah. previously did. You lost your little, your cute little kid voice. You got the awkward teen voice now. <laughs> and so like, it, it's kind of hard to hate on a baby gator. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing all of your thoughts and experiences about Crocs. Happily. Big thanks to our patrons, uh, not only for supporting us, but also for uh, submitting questions that helped us to put this together. Listeners, share your thoughts and experiences about Crocs. What do you think about Crocs? Do you have any stories of personal experiences or encounters, things like that? Hop on the social media, hop in the Discord. Let's have a whole bunch of Croc conversations going on for croc month yeah if anyone else has more questions generally or for myself i'll be in the discord so check out put them up there and i'll be checking them out this month on the discord we have the croc chat channel which is open only for the month of june so check it out stay tuned because the next episode of the podcast after this episode 168 at the end of this month will be a crocs episode very exciting yeah i'm I'm pumped (laughs) And, of course, we have our special Patreon tier, Crocs and Snakes, this month and next month. The contributions that go to us for our educational efforts at that tier during these months will also contribute to donations towards Croc conservation. Next month is July, Snake Month. We'll be doing a whole bunch of snake-related stuff. We will have another bonus episode just like this, but the tables will be turned. And I'll do the talking. (laughs) Happy Croc Month, everybody. A happy World Croc Day. Go admire a croc from afar somewhere. Yes. As all wild animals should be admired. Absolutely. (laughs) Go look up pictures of crocs. Do something. Wear your crocs. Do something to celebrate crocs in the world this month. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.